Hello and welcome to the Investors Chronicle Companies at Market Show. I am John Human, editor of the Investors Chronicle, joined today by Harriet Russell. How are you doing, Harriet? Yeah, good, thanks, John. Excellent. And uh, we'll shortly be joined by Megan Boxall, who wrote the Sector Focus this week. She's currently in a meeting, but uh, we'll be here as soon as she can. The big news uh, on the company's front this week is obviously Marks and Spencer. Uh, so that's what we're going to talk about. We might as well crack on. <laughs> well, uh, there's always... a, couple, a couple of other retailers as well. We, yeah, we it's been a big week for, for retail in general. Obviously, regular listeners of the podcast will remember John and I saying at the end of last week's show that we had had Next and we were looking forward to Marks and Spencer's this week. But... Looking forward. Mm. We were looking forward, <laughs> looking but not ahead necessarily looking forward. <laughs> <laughs> to Marks and Spencer's. Um, but I sort of left that show by saying, you know, Marks and Spencer's is always a much more political event than Next, and it didn't disappoint. Indeed. So, I mean, the results themselves, we, we'll come on to those, but I guess the big news is that uh, it's going to be closing a lot of shops. Yeah, that was the news the day before the results came out on the Tuesday, um, that the historic closure programme would accelerate. Um, he'd already, Steve Rowe, that is the chief executive, had already announced several store closures in the range of about 60. But Tuesday, he ramped that up to 100. So so. These, and these are what they call mainline stores. So we're not talking the Simply Food outlets like I have in my town, which is just food. Uh, we're talking the, the general merchandising clothes shops that, that have been the, the kind of linchpin of many a high street for, for, for years and years and years. That's exactly it. Traditional high street M&S branches. So probably the ones that people are most familiar with. I mean, I think about my own childhood and the same M&S has been in my hometown for years and years and years and it's still there. And uh, it's not on the list, thank God, of uh, one of the locations to close. Thank but, God. Um, Sound like you still shop there. I do. Do you? I do, yeah. You're a rare breed. I am a rare breed. But I have always said and will continue to say that for workwear, I think it's actually still unbeatable. Convenience sort of wear like that is um, is still one of their biggest strengths. They just need to try and make that relevant again for a millennial generation. Okay, why are they closing so many stores? Because, like many retailers on the high street, they've just got too many of them and it's not efficient to keep running them with the amount of return that they're getting from those particular sites. That's why the sites are specific and named. But also because, like many retailers, they're increasingly trying to turn online. But uh, mm. M&S's online operation is another controversial sort of subject. So, so alongside the closure programme, they set out some targets for, for the online side of the business? Yeah, so we're going to have more investment in online. Thank God it needs it. And I guess the only way to be able to compete with the Amazons of the world um, is to do that and try and sort of harness your business into a truly 50-50 operation, mm. which Amazon's, at the moment it's not. Amazon's not really big in clothing though, is it? It's it not, but it's really trying to expand its footprint there. That really is sort of one of the big... We had a meeting with Amazon, Megan and I, not too long ago, and they, they told us at that meeting that fashion was really the one frontier they were hoping to crack. They've had their own fashion line for a long time. Um, it just hasn't really had the mainstream press um, in this country yet. As I said, they've they got some targets. So what are they talking about? A third of sales coming from online. Yeah. Where are they now? much much lower round round about the 10 percent mark um so yeah it's it's going to be a long-term project for them um I th- the problem is it's going to be expensive for them to do it um because unlike next who obviously they do get compared to a lot the next directory business had a lot of the sort of back-end distribution completely set up for that and even when you look at someone like john lewis who arguably tries to harness the waitrose distribution to help them do click and collect and stuff like that they've had to introduce minimum spending targets and stuff like that in order to make it a viable business going forward and m&s will have to do the same but it's interesting over the last couple of years you've really seen m&s 
expand into click and collect as as one of their sort of main selling points for their online business and using a lot of their branches to do that successfully um but you know there have been glitches so mm. it would be expensive for them to make sure it will become a much more streamlined operation yeah i mean they have been trying for a long time this is the thing i mean i i look at big announcements around investment in online and think yeah weren't you saying this sort of two years ago three years ago four years ago it doesn't sound very new it's really it's an not. aspiration rather than a strategy. <laughs> yeah, it really is. Um, and it's amazing at how slow they've been with it. Um, I mean, you and I were just talking earlier about when they had brought on Laura Wade Geary to really sort of spearhead the next um, digital frontier. And I remember the day that her supposedly designed website launched for MS, and it was a disaster. I think it crashed on the day and there was very limited stock. There still is. So to what extent they're really maximising the opportunity there? I mean, they're just not. Online is difficult. It's difficult, and especially it's if you're coming from a position of incumbency where where those skills are not necessarily you know, embedded in the business already. You've got to hire the right staff. I mean, you know, and a lot of those staff already work at places like Amazon. So exactly, and that's that's really been to the cost of people like M and S and even Debenhams. I mean, Debenhams was forced to go private in order to get its online operation up and running. It really had to do that off the scene. But you and I were also talking about um, the future of M and S in terms of Archie Norman yesterday, which I thought was uh, an interesting point. Yeah, so Archie Norman is the new chairman. He joined, I think, in September. Yeah, and. Of last year and yeah he you, you can see kind of the fingerprints of Archie Norman in some of the, the things taking place now you know he is a turnaround specialist and he, he isn't afraid to make difficult decisions and he has a good track record of turning businesses around can he work his magic here or well, is this just simply a super tanker that's that's too big to turn it, it's a great point because what I think was so interesting yesterday was that every single headline you read in the broadsheet broadsheet press was um negative about M&S falling sales falling profits closures blah 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 and what I love so much about working with stocks and markets is that very often that doesn't translate into what the, what the share price actually does on the day and yesterday M&S shares were up four percent mm. so to me, that does speak to the investors' sort of awareness or knowledge of the Archie Norman influence in this set of circumstances, and particularly in this set of actions, which are, you know, drastic. Yeah, I guess the other thing to, to think about when, when looking at the, the, the share price balance yesterday was that the results themselves were not quite as bad as many had feared, despite the big exceptional costs of this, this closure programme. But the dividend is intact. Exactly. I mean, this is always my my final line with M&S from an investor's point of view, which is that the cash generation remains completely solid and that dividend therefore remains very well covered. And at the moment, it's still offering you a yield that's sort of above four and a half, almost five percent. So it, you know, to me, it's stick it in your income portfolio and sit on it for a year. I don't think M&S is going anywhere in the next 12 months. So. Yeah, I mean, you, you, but when you say anywhere, you mean disappearing off the face of the planet, as, uh, <laughs> I mean, as some folding. retailers have. I mean, you know, plenty. there are going to be casualties this year. I don't think M&S is going to be one of them. Yeah, I mean, there is one way that it could disappear, is that if a bidder is flushed out. I mean, Archie Norman has a track record of actually, when, once, he's turning comp- once he's turned companies around, in the case of Asda, for example, selling it on. Yeah, I mean... Is, is this, I mean, is this the, the end game? Very possibly. It happened, you know, House of Fraser, um, not a direct comparison to M&S, but not hugely dissimilar. And they are now in the hands of foreign owners, have been for some time. So I think it's totally a possibility. When I say that M&S is a political company, this is exactly what I mean. I think if, if news got out that M&S was being sold to a foreign buyer, and I think it will be a foreign buyer because I don't think there's anyone in the UK with sort of <laughs> the resources or the time or the patience to take it on um, separately, 
you know that that's going to be quite politicized i think mns is a is a national treasure and to hand it over to the chinese or um to middle eastern owners or something like that i think would prove controversial mm, national treasure maybe but uh, not been a treasure for uh, for many retail shareholders who have suffered some miserable share price returns miserable maybe. share price returns and i suppose there's always the argument that to what extent do dividends make up for that uh not really not Looking, really i mean the, 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 I, I looked at a, a share price chart and i think since 2015 i think it was the Shares have halved, basically. Yeah, it's been a miserable time. Yeah, yeah. Well, we shall see. What have you? What's our ultimate recommendation here? Well, at the moment, I've just got them on a hold. It's not the most neutral of holds that I've ever issued, because I do try and always emphasise this point that the dividend is a good one, and it's it's well covered, and it's pretty sustainable in the near term. But if you're buying it for growth, then I'm going to say that was a fairly misguided choice. Yes, absolutely. well, yes, I would. I tend to agree with that. I mean, you could sort of forgive Marks and Spencer some of the some of the recent weakness because the high street has been a horrible place to do business. Um, we have had some other results from retailers this week. Pets at home. Pets at home. <laughs> Let's start with pets at home. Because they've been having a tough time as well. They've been having a really tough time. But what's interesting with them is that they have really tried to move away from the high street and that has proved unsuccessful too. They have really tried to um, promote moving into retail parks and doing the sort of big box idea, um, which actually I've literally today covered shoe zone results. They'll be in next week's issue. Um, and they've done the same thing very successfully, but it's not working for everyone. And to me, Pets at Home is really just a victim of its own success, really, which is that the exact nature of the products that it sells are the exact nature of products that Ocado and Amazon sell in bulk right to your door. So why would you bother to drive to the retail part for it? To look at the little animals. Yeah, not such a thing anymore. Oh, yeah, they know they're there. I, even <laughs> I can be persuaded to go into a I know, so could I. So could I. There's one in my town. I'm always begging people to go in. But, oh my um, God, no, we, we, we actually have a rabbit and... And I said well, that would be the last pet we have. Well, there but you I, go. I, they are cute, some of those little animals. I know. And, well, I mean, for a long time, there was hope to do with the veterinary surgeries um, partnerships that they'd struck up. Those were proving pretty lucrative, as did the grooming salons and things like that. But all of that sort of tapered out. And uh, and then they've just had some individual kind of operational difficulties, like in their merchandising division has sort of slumped and they've had a real sort of margin knock on there and, you know, just little things. They've also had major management reshuffles over the last couple of years, quite in consistent management right at the top um it was very strange we went on a site visit with them um in south london about two years ago uh with the former former chief executive nick wood and he quit the business three weeks later which i always thought was very peculiar um and then since then they've sort of struggled to keep management around for much longer than 18 months a year so yeah you need you need stability of management in in retail especially if you're on a on a recovery mission mm. i mean you need someone who's perhaps got a track record and um maybe is brought into the business to turn it around but then you know pets at home have really favored internal appointments so it hasn't proved particularly successful no i, I must admit when i get sent to pets at home every now and then when i'm when i'm visiting wicks next door to you know when i'm asked to pick up you know some grass or whatever it is that, that i need to buy for the rat, i find the whole place overwhelming it's- I, I think they have too many products it's really interesting. The other day I read a comparison article to Toys R Us, which obviously people will know has gone into administration. And I'm not sure whether Pets at Home is suffering the same fate in that, of course, what a lot of people are pointing to at the Toys R Us failure is that their stores were like warehouses. There was no customer experience. It was just packed to the gunnels. You didn't know where anything was. And the customer service was, you know, pretty shoddy. Mm. 
I don't think the customer service angle, at least from what I saw, and I admit people might have been standing on ceremony that day, but the customer service that I saw was actually pretty well invested. That being said, I agree with you. The store is just absolutely packed to the gunnels. So not only from a customer experience point of view of knowing where things is and being able to sort of be user friendly, but also just from a plain inventory point of view, how much inventory are they holding on these sites? It must be massive. Yeah. No, honestly, I, I, I couldn't find what I was looking for. It was there. I'm sure. It took me a while. Yeah. So, you know, just from a cost perspective, trying to move stuff around, they'll obviously have an online business that they're trying to source from. And interestingly, the shoe zone management were talking to me about this today, and they were saying that they have really homogenized their online sourcing with their in-store sourcing and how they move goods around is sort of all through one central warehouse. Whereas a lot of people set up separate warehouses for sort of store inventory and moving all of that around and then online sourcing as well. You went to see shoe zone, didn't you? I did. Yeah, recently. Yeah, and Megan. Did you bring <laughs> Megan in at this point? Hello, Megan. How are you doing? I'm very well, thanks. Good meeting? Yes, it was very interesting, actually. Yeah. Good. I'm sure we'll hear more about that later. <laughs> now, but let's talk Shoe Zone, because you went out there and did a little podcast with them on site. Mm-hmm. What did you see? I mean, Shoe Zone, so the results coming out next week. Are they today. Good? Oh, today. Sorry. Yep, they're out today. But next week's mag. Next week's mag, yep. They are good, and the shares are up. They've actually turned a half-year uh, million-pound profit, which um, is pretty good compared to the 300k <laughs> that they reported last year. So there's a there's a definite improvement there. And it's just an exercise in cost-cutting, um, which was something that we really saw on the day, I think. They were talking a lot about the big box format and how that has really worked for them moving into these retail parks. The running costs are a lot less. They've really homogenised their distribution and their logistics. And they're really focusing on digital innovation. They've also signed an exclusive partnership with Amazon, which I think has been very smart as well. Okay. I was very impressed with the management. I think it can sometimes be a risk meeting management on their home turf. They're confident and they're going to sell you a good story. But... I thought he, I thought he was very good. What, what was the shop like? We, we have a shoe zone nice. in my high street. It's tiny, and it's mm. it's not that nice. What I know of shoe zone is from buying school shoes there when I was a kid, and that it was just a grim little wire rack. Everything chucked all over the place. But this is it was a nice shop. Wasn't it was it? really nice. I mean, to me, it was very um, sort of. Uh, this is really their sort of attempt at premium premiumization, if that's even a word. Um, I don't think it is. But oh, it is. It is. <laughs> It's a made-up word. It's, it's a word. <laughs> it's one now. Um, and to just be very basic about it, it just comes down to the fixtures and the fittings, doesn't it? Yeah. I mean, the floors are nice, the walls are nice, the lighting's good, it's not stark, the the shoes are displayed in wooden cabinets as opposed to on wire racks. So, so we've seen this a number of times in retail. We've seen it with Marks & Spencer, where they have a flagship store, which they like to show people and talk about, but the rest of the estate doesn't really live up to that. We've seen it with Morrison, for example, I mean, is this what's happening at Shoe Zone? Have they showed you the best shop? And- I'm sure they did show us the best shop. That one has been open, I think he said, about 18 months. Mm. But interestingly, in the results today, they've now said that they're going to roll out those fixtures and fittings to refurb the core estate over time. So I think it's not necessarily a question of, well, we'll just have to eradicate the entire existing estate and try and get these big boxes all over the country. That's going to prove so time consuming, they might not get the locations that they want. And they might have some really good locations in those original stores, they just look a bit tatty. Mm. But he said eventually the fit out costs of that is going to come down and down and down. So it'll prove to be a fairly efficient refurbishment programme, hopefully. I mean, it's quite, it's quite interesting in terms of, uh, I mean, that's CapEx, obviously. Um, I mean, just quickly turning back to Marcus Spencer, 
you know, the, the store closure programs suggest to me that they don't want to invest in, in these shops. You know, they don't have the, the appetite to, to invest in the capex to bring them up to, to something that, you know, is, the modern shopper would expect. I'm um, sure if Steve Rowe was answering that question, he would say, well, the money that we're going to save by closing these stores, net of obviously restructuring costs or redundancy costs or whatever, we can then redeploy into the business. And that'll be the interesting thing to or see. Or just keep the dividend going. Exactly, like how they do that. And it's not dissimilar to companies like, um, I don't know, GS. SK even. I don't know if that's an unfair comparison, but for them, the dividend has been so important as well. And all of their free cash that they've sort of freed up in the business has gone to keep that going because they know at the heart of it that it's core to their investment sort of um, pitch. To I be suppose. honest, I think AstraZeneca is a better example of that, which rolls into the news that we wrote this week, which they are throwing out everything that's non-core. And the only reason they're doing that is because the dividend is a big thing. They've got a lot of, of income investors. And it's important for them, for the share price to keep going the right, in the right direction, to keep that dividend going. But they can't afford it. They're, they're spending 25% of their revenue on R&D. That's an extraordinary amount. And they they shouldn't really be paying a dividend. The type of company that they have turned into shouldn't be paying a dividend. But it means that they're having to sell stuff to keep the dividend going. Yeah. Mark Spencer's, uh, in essence, doing perhaps doing the same. Yeah, perhaps. Um, and Shoe Zone, I mean, even to bring it full circle, they announced today that they had done five sale and leasebacks on freehold property, which had injected £1.2 million into their cash. And did they pay a dividend? They do pay a very generous dividend that it has a forward dividend yield of over 6%, which has been well covered. They've been a long-term income stock, so I'm not saying that this is a desperate move, but I'm not saying it's a stupid move either, because what they've been able to do is make that dividend look very well secured in the near term. And it will be interesting to see how much of that capital, they're debt-free, and they've got about six million now in net cash. How much of that capital goes towards special dividends versus sort of reinvestment into the into the business? Yeah, I mean, and I would argue that if you know if any business is serious about generating growth, then then you have to invest. You have to invest in you know in. in, in in the retail sector, in the estate. Yeah. Well, Chief, the Chief Financial Officer, Jonathan Fern, to give him credit, he did say to me this morning that it's really only surplus cash in excess of $11 million that they would return via special dividend. Mm. But how much they sort of hold back in order to just make sure that the ordinary is supported, that'll be the crucial thing. Interesting. Well, we'll read those in next week's magazine, or they'll online. they be online today, won't they? Yeah. Thank you, Harriet. Let's, let's quickly turn to, to a couple of news stories that you've written this week, uh, Megan, before we turn to your uh, sex focus on video gaming. Um so you mentioned AstraZeneca. What's, what's the big story here this week? Well, they had first quarter results, which were pretty poor. Um, they missed expectations. But the share price was still fine. AstraZeneca can do no wrong until it fails a drugs trial, because that's all anyone really cares about with AstraZeneca at the moment, whether or not what all of their amazing number of drugs in their pipeline are actually going to come to anything. Um, and until they're proven right or wrong, the share price is just going to keep going based on speculation, regardless of what the numbers do, because everyone expects Astra's numbers to be bad. Um, But the chief executive has been having quite a bit of a tough time with the shareholders who have voted against his remuneration package, even though he's taken a huge pay cut this year, because revenues have been doing so badly. It it seems to be, I mean, you've alluded to this, but it seems to be a company that's caught between two stalls. You know, it's it's like, on the one hand, it's it's the classic income stock, but on the other... It's almost like a sort of speculative biotech. I, I can't, I can't get my head around. Our this. tip was speculative, high risk biotech. It's a FTSE 100 company. It's one of the biggest companies in the UK. But I think its its share price, its valuation, is hugely based on the prospects of a few drugs which are in its pipeline. And the, the pipeline is incredibly impressive. It's one of the best in the world. 
But but every single one of those drugs could fail. Exactly. Yeah. So it is very very high risk, which is why I have now moved it to a hold because I think the share price is now it's a massive premium to the pharma sector, and yeah, the drugs might come off and the share price will keep growing. But now, I wouldn't say buy. I think it's too high risk. Mm. But I I do still like it. It's I think it's the but right. It's, amb- it's strategy. ambitious. Yeah, I think it's a good strategy in the current pharmaceutical market. I think it's quite brave. It's and the opposite of Marks and Spencer's strategy, <laughs> which yeah. you would hardly describe as brave. No, it's, it's, it's not brave, but I, I would describe it as drastic. I would describe it as drastic. And, you know, as we've said, I, th- I think that has Archie Norman's handwriting all over it. Mm, interesting. Um, there is a disaster story this week uh, on the same page uh, in Marsat. Yeah, this compa- This company case. is... It's just awful, isn't it's it? It's so bad. <laughs> the thing I don't fully understand, there's a lot of things I don't fully understand about Imarsat. It's such a complex company. But I don't understand how it's still in business. Everything has gone wrong for the last two years, apart from one set of all right Q1s, which came out in February or quite recently. And the share price went up about 20% because everyone was like, good news from Imarsat, this is a miracle. And now they've lost the monopoly in their maritime business, which is... That's the that's majority, a, the bulk of the, the business. business. Yeah, yeah. So, oh, did, did we problem. see this coming? Yeah, apparently, some analysts did. Uh, the company that has also been given approval to have its safety systems installed in ships is an American company, which has been working on it for some time. It's not going to be an immediate problem. This company isn't probably going to be ready to start installing its systems in ships until 2020. And it's also not a huge problem because Inmarsat doesn't actually make any money from its safety systems they're free they're installed in ships at no cost but then once the systems are in there those shipping companies are far more likely to buy their voice and data services from Inmarsat than go to a rival because part of the technology is already in place so now that this competitor it's actually two competitors one's a US company one's a Chinese company are going to be allowed to have their own systems installed in ships for the safety systems which are compulsory it means that they're probably going to be able to cross sell as well and it's than a disadvantage to Inmarsat. Yeah, I have to I have to admit, the satellite industry is something that I would not put one penny in uh, ever. I, find, I just find it terrifying. You know, you're sticking you know, millions and millions and millions of dollars worth of equipment yeah. on a you know, on a million bottle of dollars. oxygen, yeah. <laughs> liquid oxygen, which, send it into which space. Elon Musk might blow up. <laughs> Indeed, <laughs> yeah. I mean, it's, and that's what happened to Inmarsat. A couple of years ago, they put a rocket on the launch pad and it blew, it blew up. That is so much money that's literally disappeared just like that. Because, literally goes up in flames. Yeah, uh, uh, yeah, because of an accident. And they're spending, they've penciled in 500 to 600 million dollars of capex this year and next year. It's, it's an extraordinary amount of money which is taken just to send up one satellite. And, and then once it's there, it's there, that's great. And the cash rolls in, but... Getting it there is is a really big deal. Yeah, is there anything we like about this company? Yeah, the cash flows. We do like the cash flows, and uh, so we have on a hold. I mean, it's not. We we're not. We're, I mean, we're not. I we're think not. We're a very, very bad tip of the year. Uh, yeah, let's not talk about that. Too yeah. much. <laughs> <laughs> Potentially the worst <laughs> ever. Yeah, it happens. Um, uh, and I, I should have taken it off that tip a long time before I did, but it's. Because of the cash flows and the fact that if stuff does go right, it's actually it's almost a utility company. It, it it could be paying really high dividends, but so much has gone wrong. The markets are so bad. Maritime market is in decline. There's just all sorts of 
bad stuff going on. Public contracts, no one wants public contracts at the moment. Um, it's really tough for MSR. The only bit that's actually really good is the aviation bit, which they are installing Wi-Fi on aeroplanes and they're signing 20 new contracts every year. So that's ex- that is quite exciting because mm. because the I mean the airline industry is growing incredibly quickly. Yeah. Um and you know in this day and age everybody wants you know access to the internet at all times and yeah. you can't get it on a plane. So so that sounds like a massive opportunity. Yeah, it is. And they are they are doing well to capitalize on that opportunity. I I don't actually know if there are any competitors who can also do it. I don't think there are that many competitors in well, the satellite communication space. Not but, an easy business to get into. No, and, and to be honest, I think there should only be one company in the satellite communication space. Why would you compete with a satellite that's already up there? It seems very odd to me. But that is why it's potentially a takeover target if the share price goes down far enough. But it's good at airlines. Yeah, And it's okay. good at making cash. That's it. Okay. Let's talk about video game, which is something that... that is genuinely a boom market. Lots of companies coming into this space. Mm-hmm. Uh, lots of companies. I mean, it, it's been a boom market for years and years and years, but it's having a bit of a, a rebirth, particularly in terms of how investable it is in the UK. Yeah. Um, and I think you start your piece by talking about an, another company that's going to be coming to AIM, Team 17. Yeah, it joined yesterday. Oh, did it join yeah. already? Yeah, I didn't actually look to see how the share price did. I should have done that, but it it's a 200-odd million pound company. It, it makes niche video games, which are... I've got titles like Worms. Worms. Yeah. I know it well. Yeah. Oh, I know this is, I mean, this is, this is, this is nostalgia stuff. Yeah, is it? Yeah, yeah. It's now so, gone. I like, don't yeah, know yeah. it. I didn't know it at all. But when I spoke to the chief financial officer the other day, he was almost like, don't you know? You don't know Worms. <laughs> it's a real club, isn't it? I mean, that's what I, I edited this piece. So I, I know a bit about it now too as well. But the, the feeling I got from it was that it's, it's a real sort of niche market with customers that are not going anywhere. Yeah, people who like games like games, and they mm. tend to buy a lot of games. Yeah, go back to retail. Uh, I am showing at my age now. A few years ago, you had a company, Game Group. Are they still around? They are still around. Yeah, they've actually come back to market. I think. Yeah, they did. They did. Um, but they went bust. They essentially went bust. They they misread the market. They kind of thought that when you had the Nintendo Wii launch, that gaming was going to suddenly become a fixture in every person's living room, and everyone was going to, you know, families were going to spend loads of money on it. And it didn't really happen. It's gone back to being yeah. a sort of niche hobbyist market. Yeah, but there is also the sense that yeah, it's it's hobbyist, but it's a much bigger hobbyist market now it, it, because there's, there are so many games out there and there are so many platforms to play it on and that's the main thing that's changed and has driven this boom in the industry is the amount of people that are pay, playing games on their mobile phones all over the place because you can get access to the internet everywhere apart from in aeroplanes and it's amazing how many... That is what the, that's where the growth is coming from more so than consoles or PCs or any kind of other platform. So the opportunity for companies to grow into the mobile space is huge and it's almost bigger, and this is what some analysts have said, for the smaller, better equipped to make small games companies. So when Nintendo tried to launch Super Mario Run on a phone, it didn't do well at all because they gave it an £8 price tag, which people don't want to spend £8 on a game that's on their phone. But then the makers of Angry Birds, which is obviously a huge global success, was a tiny company. So there's an opportunity for smaller indie companies to launch 
huge global games based on their own expertise because of the rise in the mobile platform. It's, it's quite interesting. It's almost like, the, you know, it goes back to the retail problem. Incumbency is very hard to, to change your habits. Mm-hmm. If you're used to charging £8 a game, then that's what you're going to do. If you're if you're not an incumbent, if you're completely, you know, out of the box, then yeah. you can do something different. Yeah, and that's not to say that the incumbents are doing badly. They're not at all. They're growing so quickly and the popularity of video games is is incredible. The amount that people want to play the next Call of Duty and they wait for FIFA to come out and the share price growth... I can see that's what you're pointing to. The little table you've got here, it's amazing, really. It's incredible. The the companies behind the games, it's triple-digit share price growth in the last few years. And in the UK, Keyword Studios... 1,000% 1,000% share price growth in the last three years. Keyword Studios, this is Elite, am I right? So, no, that's no, Frontier, Frontier Development. Development. What's Keyword Studios? Keyword Studios is oh, like an outsourcer. Yeah. So they do things like check the check for bugs and glitches. Um, yeah, it's just checking to see whether the game's running smoothly. Um, and I was speaking to an analyst who was saying that companies are doing more and more of that because games are getting better now so he used the analogy of the car once the car industry started getting better they started outsourcing their tires because once once a, a market is big enough you can rely on other markets for little parts of it and that's why keyword studios is doing so well at the moment and mm. it's got plenty more room to grow when i used to buy when i started buying games many games you couldn't finish because there was a bug mm. on like level seven or something. <laughs> <laughs> you could never get any further. So, so tell us um, uh, about some of the opportunities that UK investors have uh, at their fingertips in this market. Yeah, so I mean, you know, thousand percent, we want some of that. Yeah, we have still got that on a buy. Um, I think Harry Klarfeld tipped it quite recently, actually, because the market is growing so much, and Keyword Studios has got such a, a a strong position. It's the leader, leading company in outsourcing development of games is, is, I mean is that I think I spoke to Harry about this when we did a podcast after the AIM 100 um, mm-hmm. but I mean is that a trend in the industry that companies the large publishers will will actually get someone else to write their game will outsource a lot of that yeah. rather than having the risk on their books and the cost of the staff on their books yeah yeah, and there is more of that because there are more individual companies that can do it and because they come up with best, well, really good ideas. Um, so the company that does more of the outsourcing of, of actually writing and developing the whole game is Sumo. So they're another small aimlisted company. Like a studio. Yeah, and, and they do what Frontier Developments used to do, which was write games for other people and come up with it's the creative creative side of it. And it's, a, it's another really interesting company. It's slightly different to Keyword Studios because it's the writing and the creativity of the game rather than the actual technological get it right, fix the glitches kind of thing um but they're both very interesting companies and then frontier developments is now arguably an even more interesting company because it's doing its own games it's all about its own brand it's got a big partnership with universal to make a game about jurassic world Uh, it's got two other games which have which are still growing because of all the in-house purchases that they offer people are willing to pay a lot of money for for extra levels and extra bits of the game and Frontier Development's share price growth has been extraordinary as well. Indeed, and we, we're good at it in the UK. Mm. We are good at games. Yeah. It? It's Rock, Rockstar was the, the obviously massive British success story in gaming, which yeah. is Grand Theft Auto. Yeah. Um, but yeah, we are good at this stuff. Yeah. But then, you know, we had... Oh, God, I'm getting, getting all nostalgic again. <laughs> Raw wedding <laughs> taking not, over. <laughs> Must be the old spectrum. <laughs> <laughs> no, we, 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 we really kick-started this industry. Britain was where it all began, mm. really, in terms of games development. And 
And nostalgia is a massive market because now these companies which started those games in the first place, however many years it was, they can rewrite those games with incredible new graphics and people of the generation who bought them the first time will buy them again because... They're still gamers at heart. Oh, God. Yeah, I mean, it's so the event side of things that really fascinates me as well. I was going to talk about that. Esports. Yeah, I mean, it's massive, isn't it? I have I have friends who go to this stuff. I mean, Megan was saying that she spoke to an analyst who is another keen spectator of this, <coughs> quote, sport. She said, go not to play, no, but no, to watch someone to playing watch. a computer game. Mm-hmm. Watch two people on stage compete on the video game on a big screen. And Megan and I were saying, we've heard of these events sell- selling out, like Wembley Arena. Massive arenas, yeah. Do, do, do you get esports stars? You know, is there a Lionel yeah. Messi of esports? So West Ham was the first football club to sign an esport player. Professional. Well, they were a fantastic club, very innovative. <laughs> <laughs> See Dom shaking his head over there in the control. <laughs> well, they can't get any good real players. So. Thanks, Megan. Who's well, esports? Yeah. Tottenham. Oh dear. So West Ham have signed an esports star. Yeah, they've got a couple now, yeah, on the books. It's, yeah. Yeah, it's and Epic Games have got that pool, well, that pot for their first inaugural competition this year. It's £100 million. Pounds. pounds or dollars? Oh, I can't remember. Whatever £100 it was, million yeah. dollars is in the prize pot for the winner. And it, it's, it's the first competition ever. They've not run it before for what this particular what, game. What sort of games are they playing? Fortnite. What's that? It's this one that's a big craze at the moment. And I'm not really sure it's a multiplayer fighting building extravaganza. I don't know it, but personally, but my cousins who are teenage boys do and they 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 speak highly of it. So this is this is a career potentially for people now. Oh yeah, yeah, yeah definitely. Oh it really started on YouTube, didn't it? That people would play these video games on YouTube and get millions and millions of hits of people watching them play the game. Um, and it's just turned into an industry and all it, of its own. It sparked, it's also sparked more growth in the actual gaming industry, and that's what the CFO from Team 17 was saying. He does a lot of marketing via YouTube and via the, the channels, where the, the eSports channels, because they're the audience that they should be targeting. You, they don't need to target a wider audience. They're not going to get me to ever play one of their games, really, unless I was interested one time. But they know that there are people out there who will play them religiously. So just target them, get them to buy them. This all sounds very exciting. How do, how do we as investors get involved in this? So that, those four, five, it's a growing market so in the UK. So, I mean, this sounds very exciting, if a little baffling. But, you know, the, the big question, I guess, for, for readers and listeners of the Investors Chronicle is how do you get involved in the event side of things? So Gfinity is the, I think it's the only one UK listed company. It's been around, it's been on the markets for maybe four years now it hasn't done particularly well but it has done well in signing up big sponsors and it's it's it hosts some big competitions like it holds the world cup of call of duty um which is very exciting um (laughs) so calm down harry (laughs) i just can't believe that this is a thing the world cup of call of duty yeah and they pay people to come in and professionals to come and Play. When you think about it, though, it's no more stupid than, than like paying someone, you know, ten million pounds a year to kick a ball around. Oh yeah, I I actually agree, and I do. Oh, Tom shaking I, his head over there. I, I don't I don't love the concept of playing your sport on a console. I don't think that's good for the human race. But I understand that there are people who who love that, and yeah, it's it's nice that they've 
got that <laughs> for themselves to enjoy. And people love it. So it, it is a market that is potential. There's potential to invest in it. Gfinity, yeah, I, I'm not, I'm not convinced about Gfinity. I think it's been around for long enough now that it should have mm. seen some growth, and it hasn't. And I don't really know why. I thought Game Group was trying to get the new Game Group, Game Digital. That's what they call it. Mm-hmm. Was trying to get involved in the esports space as well. I don't know because they're too small for our regular coverage at the moment. But what I think is interesting about them is that they have quite a sizable investment from Mike Ashley, which to me, obviously, he's king of the high street and he's a retailer at heart. So it'll be interesting to know how much of a sort of digital focus he's really got and how much of a sort of open mind he has into branching that business out. Because what all these other subsectors do for each other is obviously feed into one another. Mm. If the games get more sophisticated and more fun, then that's going to feed into events and vice versa. So if Mike Ashley can try and harness game digital into more than just a, a games retailer, um, then I agree with you. There is opportunity there. But and, and this is a kind of big trend across the high street to create experiences mm-hmm. rather than just purchasing physical goods. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, that is the millennial experience in a word. So maybe in that respect, Marks and Spencer's fighting a losing battle. Hmm, experiences at Marks and Spencer's. How do, we, how do we jump from video gaming and esports to Marks and Spencer's? <laughs> but we did. There you go. Uh, brilliant. Thank you, uh, Megan. And uh, thank you, Harriet. I'll just talk you quickly through what else we've got in the magazine. Very busy on the results front this week and probably again this week as well. It never seems to end. Lots more in the news section. We've got, we've got some uh, interesting news from uh, the oil and mining industries uh, from Alex Newman. Uh, lots in personal finance and finance section. There's a good piece there from Emma, actually. I hope they talk about us on their podcast tomorrow about cognitive biases in investing this is a big thing you should always pay attention the usual comments and uh, and all the other fantastic things you get in each week's investors chronicle and including of course the big cover feature this week which is our annual top 50 etfs roundup which i assume they'll be talking about tomorrow on the personal finance podcast really fantastic in-depth feature there pretty much if you wanted to you could build a portfolio out of this stuff and we've given you some ideas for doing that and never do anything else certainly not investing in marks and spencer so uh, thank you all for listening and uh, we'll be back again next week Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details.